You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record this podcast on Indigenous land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast. My name is Ros Ward. I'm the host, and uh, Liam is with me, yep. not in the same room. We haven't been in the same room for a very long time. <laughs> Hi, Liam. Hey, Ros. And um, just another quick plug, if you enjoy this episode or if you enjoy any of our other episodes, please um, just share them around. It's a very simple thing to do, and it is a very effective thing for us to get more people to listen to um this podcast and we really appreciate anywhere that you share it on all of the different social platforms that people are on. So this is a pretty um, crazy moment that we're talking about Um, and I wanted to say that we are recording this on the morning of Tuesday the 17th of August 2021 and it's a rapidly changing situation so we could be talking about stuff and that's changed by the time you listen to it. But just so you know, that's when we're having this discussion. And we're having it with Simone White, who is a long-time socialist activist and union activist based in Sydney, who's written a bunch of pieces in Red Flag newspaper and um, who gave a presentation online a couple of weeks ago about the situation in Afghanistan. And um, as someone who is active in the anti-war movement, as Liam was, um, for years and years against the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as part of Stop the War. Simone has uh, had a close interest in the in the region. And what we've seen um, in the last few days is the just incredible scenes of the Taliban now taking uh, complete control over the country and overwhelming um the government forces, supposed forces that mm-hmm. were left behind when the American troops and others withdrew. And this has now been described in all sorts of ways, but, you know, a crisis of untold proportions that all of these world leaders are now talking about uh, the dramatic um, situation in Afghanistan. There was a quote from German Chancellor Angela Merkel who if people remember, Germany had the second highest number of troops invade Afghanistan. And she called it an extremely bitter development, bitter, dramatic, and terrifying. French President Emmanuel Macron warned that this may lead to a migrant influx into Europe. And this is incredible because he said that, and this was on TV, that the European leaders are in contact to launch an initiative against irregular migration. So this is Emmanuel Macron, the centre of European politics, is saying the thing to note here is there's going to be a lot of refugees, so we've got to plan how we stop them. That's Macron's position at this point. So that's beautiful, isn't it? Um, And then, of course, people have been watching the scenes of the – airport, people trying to escape, and the scenes of helicopters taking off from the roof of the US Embassy and that photo that if you haven't seen it, you'll be able to see it online in all sorts of places, of those helicopters taking off eerily similar to the evacuation of Saigon 46 years ago at the end of the Vietnam War. So it's extraordinary scenes. And what it seems like we're left with is 
where Afghanistan was 20 years ago when George Bush launched Operation Enduring Freedom. So, Simone, welcome and thanks for being here to talk about this with us. Where where are we now from your perspective? Um, yeah, hi, Roz and Liam. Um, well, as you've kind of um, uh, implied, uh, Roz, I, like I, I just think it's a genuinely mind-blowing um, exercise to try to wrap your head around the fact that the situation in Afghanistan now has not only um, sort of circled back after 20 years of war to almost the exact same situation that it was in uh, in 2001 with the Taliban in power, um, you know, another civil war, uh, a distinct uh, possibility, if not a, a probability, um, and and all these other massive internal, humanitarian, economic um, and social catastrophes, but that it is it is an exponentially and horrifically worse situation now that faces the people of Afghanistan. Um, and for that matter, um, I think the, the region potentially of the Middle East, um, parts of Central and, um, and, and South, A- South Asia with, you know, the, the prospect uh, for the potential of, you know, new wars, conflicts to emanate out of Afghanistan uh, into neighbouring countries. Um, but I guess before, you know, getting on to talk about why this extraordinary disaster has evolved uh, to the point that it has and hint, um, capitalism and, and imperialism, I think we really should just initially emphasise and uh, and reflect on the, the absolute hell and tragedy that has been visited upon millions of ordinary Afghan people in the past uh, 20 years, to say nothing of the previous decades uh, of imperialist wars, um, the extent of the the terror, the the barbarism, dispossession, uh, the, the trauma, grief, poverty, that the inhuman crimes that have been meted out uh, to Afghans is really just incalculable um, in its in its immense in its immensity. It is monstrous. It is a bottomless pit. It has no end. Right now, uh, as you've uh, already talked about, Roz, there's another massive refugee crisis unfolding in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, no less, with Afghan refugees fleeing into neighbouring countries like Iran, which is the worst affected country uh, in the Middle East uh, with COVID. They have a a fifth or I've lost count, a sixth wave of Delta unfolding there and the horrific scenes which you've mentioned um, Roz, you know, of people clinging to US Air Force planes, um, taking off uh, from, from Kabul airport and thousands of other desperate uh, people, refugees uh, fleeing from uh, the Taliban. Um, and that's just a glimpse really into the horror um, that is, is, is now unfolding. And I think really where our uh, focus should be quite sharply right now um, which is that, you know, whilst the Taliban should undoubtedly be wiped off the face of the earth, um, the, the Western imperialist powers that have wrecked Afghanistan, they should be wiped off the face of the earth. Um, the, the atrocities of the past 20 years in Afghanistan are the fault of imperialism um, and principally uh, the imperialism of the United States and its partners, Australia, Britain, all the NATO uh, powers, uh, all those imperialist powers and, and, you know, some of even the other sort of regional capitalist and imperialist powers 
uh, in the Middle East uh, and Central and South Asia are implicated, certainly historically have been uh, implicated in the nightmare that we're now seeing unfolding um, again in Afghanistan. Yeah, I think that's a really good starting point. And so let's run through as briefly as we can, I guess, because mm-hmm. it's a, it is a complicated history, but it's yeah. also not that complicated in yeah. terms of the imperialist interventions. So let's start in, in 2001 here with the mm. Coalition of the Willing. Tell us about how it all started here. Well, I think, like, yeah, we we – we can talk about 2001, but we probably actually just have to reflect a little bit um, on what happened prior to 2001, um, you know, when the U- US with its sort of so- so-called coalition of the willing, its other imperialist partners uh, invaded Afghanistan because at that point Afghanistan had already been categorically wrecked um, and destroyed by by decades of war. Like So one of the expressions that was most commonly used to describe Afghanistan before the US in invaded was that had it you know it had already been reduced to rubble that it was a basket case um and it had been reduced to rubble by a soviet union occupation between 1979 to 1989 that was based on the the priorities of soviet imperialism and those priorities were to occupy a country you know within what is considered to be uh, its geostrategic territory it it considered to be within within its you know sphere of influence to uh, exert control over the, you know, flow of energy resources like oil and gas and to keep its rivals out of a geographical area, uh, Afghanistan, which is a gateway country um, on the north-south axis of Central Asia. It's wedged between corridors to Asia and the Middle East, both key regions of the world, uh, to influence and control from the perspective of global uh, and regional imperialist powers. And so the Soviet war uh, resulted in this uh, kind of two-pronged war within Afghanistan. One arm of that war was the war that was waged by the Soviet Union against the people of Afghanistan that resulted in a million Afghans killed and millions more turned into refugees. And the second prong of that war became a war that was fought between the US and the Soviet Union within Afghanistan. Um, And so the US was determined to expel the Soviet Union, its imperialist rival from this important region, Uh, in the final stages of the Cold War between those two imperialist powers. The fallout from that conflict between the Soviet Union and the US within Afghanistan, uh, which ended in 1989 uh, with the US winning, was then a decade of brutal civil war uh, between rival uh, tribal and Islamist militants and local warlords who had been funded in the previous decade to the tune of eventually billions of dollars by the United States to fight the Soviet Union uh, out of Afghanistan. The the US and actually like not just the US but also Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, to some extent uh, the United Kingdom and China funded what is uh, now known or was then known as the Mujahideen Uh, and that's an umbrella term for, you know, groups of fighters and Islamic militants that they were trained in Pakistan, they were funded via the United States, by the United States and those other imperialist powers They were helped and facilitated by US allies like Egypt and Israel, um, and they were quite directly orchestrated by the Pakistani intelligence services. So the Pakistani intelligence services funneled weapons and money to Mujahideen fighters, um, and and they and the CIA, the the US CIA, worked together um, and recruited, you know, not just from Afghanistan, 
but around the region and around the world, uh, these fighters who were usually trained in Pakistan, they were very willing to take the guns and money to destroy and expel um, a common enemy in Afghanistan, the Soviet Union. But when the US won and they withdrew from Afghanistan, these different factions of uh, Mujahideen fighters, many of whom were linked to you know, rival landowners across the vast and mostly rural areas of Afghanistan where most of the population uh, live, they turned their, their guns on each other and then the population in an attempt to wrest control of the country. So what is important, I think, to understand about this civil war that eventually led you know, to the victory of the Taliban by 1986 was that the kind of brutal reactionary anti-women um, form of Islamist ideology and practice that the Taliban cultivated to enforce its rule was very consciously, explicitly promoted by the CIA during the Soviet war, first under a Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, and then the Republican president, Ronald Reagan. At they, Ronald Reagan called the Mujahideen at the time freedom fighters. Um, and so the US fermented, they financed, they actively encouraged the most utterly macabre reactionary strains of militant Islam, uh, Islamism, not just not variants of Islamism that had in any way previously existed historically um, in Afghanistan. And this was connected to the US's stated goals of wanting to inflict a version of their own humiliating defeat in Vietnam um, on their rival, uh, the Soviet Union. Um, and, they, and, and they knew it was going to destroy Afghanistan. So, yeah, they, they deliberately chose to give the most support to the most extreme groups to hurt the, the, the Russians. A disproportionate share of US arms went to this Afghan warlord named Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. Um, and he, like this guy, according to a US journalist, uh, Tim Weiner, um, I've, I've just brought along some quotes to emphasise some of this stuff. Um, Tim Weiner, who was a US journalist, um, described uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, you know, great friend to the US, as, quote, a particularly fanatical fundamentalist and woman hater. Um, according to him, Hekmatyar's followers um, first gained attention by throwing acid in the faces of women who refused to wear the veil. Um, and and Tim Weiner said that CIA and State Department officials that I have spoken with call him scary, vicious, a fascist, a fascist definite dictatorship um, material. Uh, so these are the kinds of people um, that the US backed in their war um, and funded uh, in their war uh, against uh, uh, the Soviet Union. And then, you know, then, of course, there were all these credible reports of links between the CIA and Osama bin Laden, you know, who was a wealthy businessman from Saudi Arabia, a long US ally with links to the royal family there, um, reportedly worked closely with the CIA to recruit thousands of Islamist fighters from Saudi Arabia with the assistance of large funds um, from private Saudi citizens. And so, you know, that whilst there's absolutely no doubt or what, it, what there is absolutely no doubt about is that the formation of al-Qaeda took place during the civil war when bin Laden with US and Saudi funds and weapons um, was leading a faction as one of Ronald Reagan's so-called freedom freedom fighters in the Mujahideen. Um, and, yeah, those freedom fighters, as I mentioned, went on to become the Taliban of today um, and other reactionary uh, militant extremists who further wrecked Afghanistan in a civil war for 10 years up until about the year 2000, at which point the Taliban were firmly in control. Mm. And I think that's useful because... 
there is so much um, myth-making about Afghanistan in terms of, you know, the kind of uh, cultural practices, historical um, levels of fundamentalism, this kind of like Stone Age, you know, backward country that um, the US was, you know, always about trying to bring into the 20th century or whatever. And that actually, when you look at that history, all of the most fundamental warlords and mujahideen and all of that history that you've went over were really created by or at least made into a more monstrous version of themselves with millions of dollars and weapons and um, the backing of the US empire into this, yeah, into this and thrown into the kind of the pit of war to to just – yeah, um, drown the country in in blood and fury, and that's that's the legacy before you even get to the yeah. invasion yeah. after nine eleven. Our so then we get to nine eleven, which is going to be a, a big deal in a couple of weeks when we get yeah. to the twentieth anniversary, right? So um, let's talk about the reality of that situation and and what was the rationale because 9-11 was a very good uh reason (laughs) um but it didn't actually come out of nowhere this war yeah that's right that was um that that was the the excuse that was given um to justify um the intervention uh into afghanistan um but it's not the reason um for the intervention so the reason that the US um, occupied, um, invaded and occupied Afghanistan was actually part of a, a very deliberate and conscious strategy of shoring up its power and its unrivaled, you know, at that point in time, number one position in the global imperialist hierarchy at the dawn of the 21st century. And you know, the United States wouldn't have to outline this goal categorically and write it down in like defence reports and strategy papers for us to understand that this is why they went into Afghanistan. But uh, they did do that, um, just to make it all a bit clearer for us. Um, So um, this conservative think tank of some of the most powerful representatives of the US ruling class, they organised themselves together uh, in a group uh, some people will remember called the Project for a New American Century, and they wrote an actual foreign policy blueprint for this project um, for global US military dominance. So the Project for a New American Century, I'll just call it PNAC from now on, um, it, that started in 1997. It ended up with a membership of 25 conservatives and future mass murderers and war criminals, the likes of Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, and t- 10 of the 25 members of that group went on to serve in the administration of George Bush, who hit the, the green light on the invasion of Afghanistan. And I think it's actually worth reading out a few snippets from um, PNAC's original statement of principles and then, like, the military report that they published uh, in 2000. Um, uh uh, just because, uh, and that report was called, again, some people will, will remember this, Rebuilding America's Defences, because they, some of these, their direct quotes kind of neatly summarise the core elements of the military imperialist strategy that the US ruling class was orienting to years before al-Qaeda launched its terrorist attacks um, in New York and Washington uh, in, te- in 2001. So PNAC's um, Statement of Principles, published in ninety seven. 
described the United States um, as, quote, the world's preeminent power and said that the nation faced a challenge to, again, I'm quoting, shape a new century favourable to American principles and interests. And in order to achieve that goal, PNAC called for significant increases in defence spending for the promotion of, quote, political and economic freedom abroad. Um, It outlined how the United States should strengthen ties with its democratic allies. Um, Again, I'm quoting to challenge regimes hostile to our interests and values uh, and to preserve and extend an international order friendly to our security, our prosperity and our principles. Um, and so this is prior to, you know, the uh, the attacks on uh, uh, on Washington and New York. And then again, prior, in September 2000, they released the Rebuilding America's Defences Report, which promoted, uh, quote, the belief that America should seek to preserve and extend its position of global leadership by maintaining the preeminence of U.S. military forces. And that report also shockingly stated, like in a portend of things to come in Afghanistan and Iraq, that they were prepared to use advanced forms of biological warfare. Um, one of the key goals discussed by PNAC, again, prior to the al-Qaeda attack on 9-11, was to go into Iraq, to overthrow Saddam Hussein, to install a pro-US regime there. And as history, as we now know, has demonstrated, They had their eyes on Iraq um, to install a pro-US government as a counterweight to their rival Iran, uh, which obviously is a regional power. They wanted access for US companies to oil, obviously in abundance uh, in Iraq. And they projected that if they could get a foothold in Iraq, which has been a key country for imperialists since the Ottoman Empire was broken up because of its geographic location, you know, port access to the Persian Gulf, through which 20% of the world's oil flows uh, and its proximity to the to the oil-rich Gulf states. So I don't think, you know, Afghanistan, it's not where they wanted to start, but they couldn't easily justify invading Iraq after 9-11, uh, the 9-11 attacks, because al-Qaeda had no relationship to Iraq. So they just crafted a response with specific justifications for going into Afghanistan, which is, you know, a gateway to the Middle East. It's a geo- geopolitically important place for imperialist powers, uh, you know, and also partly because of its proximity to Russia and Iran, who've kind of historically, you know, held a monopoly on the transportation of oil and gas to parts of Asia. Um, And so, you know, the the other way that we know, um, the other kind of bold and direct statements that were made about um, people in George Bush's administration that tell us um, what this imperialist intervention intervention was really about was um, the the comments that were made by people like Condoleezza Rice, who was George Bush's most senior advisor, and she became Secretary of State. She um, was reported as saying in a now quite famous quote to a National Security Council meeting in relation to the um, September 11 attacks, or posing the question, how do we capitalise on those opportunities. So she called the attacks opportunities via which she went on to argue that the US could lead a coalition of world powers against, you know, this global threat, i.e. against uh, a terrorist threat. And she argued that it should be seen as a kind of global threat in the same sort of way that, you know, like the threat of communism um, and by extension, you know, any opposition to the US, any left-wing opposition was characterised by the US as a threat, you know, to the whole of humanity during the Cold War. And so thus the global war on terror was launched. 
you know, under the rubric of destroying al-Qaeda and the Taliban in, uh, in Afghanistan and, you know, under the banner of a humanitarian intervention to save women, to rebuild Iraq's, uh, sorry, Afghanistan's infrastructure. And as we know then, Australia jumped on board um, Bush's coalition of the willing as actually um, the most enthusiastic partner of um, of the US outside of Britain. Mm. And Condoleezza Rice is a great example. If you listen back to our Marxist critique of identity politics of a yeah. black woman yeah. um, being in power, not really helping anyone except the ruling class. So, so yeah, that was a great explanation. And, of course, this, Australia's involvement um, is important for people listening in Australia to recognise um, and the imperialist intentions um, of Australian capitalism. But I wonder if we could just go to this question of um, uh, women and that that is coming up now and that kind of idea that justified and put off people, and I remember being part of the anti-war movement as well in the UK mm-hmm. against Tony Blair and the Labor government there um, joining in this coalition, that people thought, okay, maybe there is some truth in this um, part of the rationale. We get the geopolitical thing, we get imperialism, but is is this not in some way going to be better for women to not live under the Taliban? So can we talk about that um, for a minute? Yeah. So I think this kind of links up um, to how, you know, liberals um, and liberal feminists just um, uh, slurped up, um, you know, all of the rhetoric around this imperialist uh, war, this imperialist intervention being some kind of, you know, form of benevolent um, imperialism and that it actually had anything to do um, with the liberation of women um, like you get like any, you know, imperialist war has ever liberated um, any women Um, because, you know, that's how you get liberation at the end um, of an AK-47 or a cluster bomb. Um, You know, I think uh, historically, you know, it's been, you know, really proven that um, bombing women's weddings is a a great way uh, to liberate them, which happened frequently um, Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. So liberals in particular um, took up the arguments of, uh, you know, famous feminist war hawks like Hillary Clinton, um, the First Lady of the United States, uh, Laura Bush, um, that called uh, this so-called uh, war in Afghanistan uh, a good war and framed this war as a war um, to liberate Afghan women um, from the Taliban. Well, suffice it to say um, there's been no liberation for women in Afghanistan um, and it's hard to overstate actually how much worse things are now for women in Afghanistan. And I reckon, like, if you think about the legacy of the US's longest war ever there, it's not hard to an- understand why um, why their war had nothing to do with freedom or democracy or liberating women. In the first 10 years, we witnessed the spectacle of US soldiers urinating on the corpses of Afghan men, bombing wedding parties over and over again, uh, mass murdering innocent civilians, 
burning the Quran and other violent uh, racist Islamophobic acts. Then we had mass drone bombing campaigns, roads, security, public health and other infrastructure uh, have been destroyed, not built. It's actually a myth that there were all these schools built uh, for women across Afghanistan or even, you know, health um, services. Um, the vast majority of the population of Afghanistan live outside, uh, like its two major cities, Kandahar uh, and Kabul. Um, and they didn't um, have schools built. Like, you know, all this money that the US funneled um, into those regions went to uh, the warlords that re-established themselves uh, in those regions uh, to buy guns, to traffic drugs, uh, opium and so on, not actually to build schools. So it's actually just a myth um, that schools were built or, or health services. Uh, and, in, and in any case, despite the fact that, you know, women in Afghanistan deserve uh, to go to school, Education doesn't uh, liberate women, um, certainly not in the midst um, of a hellish war. Um, unemployment skyrocketed. Civilians have been killed by crossfire, improvised explosive devices, assassinations, bombings, night raids into houses, you know, of in suspected insurgents, um, like the likes of the, the raids and uh, murders that we've seen the Australian SAS troops uh, involved in. And even like in the absence of fighting, unexploded ordnance uh, from previous wars um, and United States cluster bombs is continuing to kill people. There's an increased rate of diseases due to poverty, collapsing infrastructure. Almost a quarter of a million people have been killed in Afghanistan and Pakistan since 2001. More than 71,000 of those killed have been civilians. What has increased in Afghanistan for women since 2001 is the suicide rate exponentially. So, you don't get freedom and democracy at the end of a cluster bomb or an M16. You don't get freedom and democracy in mass torture facilities, um, you know, like the now notorious Abu Ghraib or Bagram Air Base or Guantanamo Bay, where the US rolled out the most prolific and racist torture regimes it has, in, it has ever undertaken in any of its wars. This does not bring liberation for women. Yeah, which makes it so much more frustrating when that's the um – you know, liberal discussions now go back to, oh, my God, but what are we going to do for the women because we did so much for them before? And you're like, are you even, are you joking? Have you even looked at anything um, that is real about what the situation in Afghanistan is? So I just want to get to then um, some ideas from a revolutionary socialist perspective, which this this podcast proudly takes up, about what can be done because obviously people are talking about now just a rescue mission basically. Um, yeah. And obviously it's just a human thing that you would think that people, um, that governments could at least uh, organise to um, allow refugees safe passage out of Afghanistan if they need it, and particularly the ones that were, you know, um, that have been abandoned as allies of all of these uh, imperialist forces that invaded who are also being left behind. You can just imagine those that kind of betrayal anyway. Um, so apart from that, what could be done here? What do you think the solution is, Simone? Well, 
I guess just before talking about like the overall solution um, for the people of Afghanistan, I think we should say, first of all, um, that refugees, Afghan refugees in their millions, however many of them want to leave, should be able to leave and they should be welcomed with open arms um, by all of the imperialist countries um, that have uh, th- that have turned them into refugees, that have um, perpetrate these, perpetrated these crimes against the people of Afghanistan for the last 20 years. They should pay those refugees reparations. They should give them absolutely everything that they need um, to start or, you know, to, uh, to, to be able to be safe um, and to flee uh, the carnage that's now unfolding, which is the responsibility um, of those imperialist powers. Um, so, so just, you know, <laughs> for all the bleeding hearts um, and the liberals that are, you know, now kind of repeating the same uh, lies um, and, you know, all the same tropes about needing to save women and so on. Well, if they really want to um, help, you know, the women of Afghanistan, um, then refugees um, should be allowed uh, to go, you know, now wherever they want um, to be looked after and cared for. I think overall, though, the, sol- the solution to overturning all of this, I would argue, um, is embodied actually in the slogans and actions of the, the breathtaking mass popular revolutionary uprisings of millions of people across the Arab world that started in 2011, that had a resurgence in Iraq, Sudan, Lebanon, Algeria and Iran uh, three years ago. Uh, the most popular chant in those uprisings has, pe- has been the people want the fall of the regime. And by that, they meant obviously their own dictators, but from Egypt to Syria to Lebanon to Iraq to Algeria, they also demanded the overthrow of the regional and the global imperialist warmongers that back their dictators, the US, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and all the other imperialists who back the dictatorships, uh, who together have plunged Afghanistan and other countries uh, into backwardness and authoritarianism and desperate poverty. For weeks now, actually, in Iran, or for, for you know, since, since June, we've seen tens of thousands of workers across 60 uh, or actually up to 100 different oil and petrochemical installations across uh, the oil-rich south of Iran uh, on, on strike. That is where the hope for liberation, I would argue, for, for Afghanistan lies, in a multi-ethnic working class uh, on the doorstep of Afghanistan enraged with their own regional dictatorship and and the millions of workers across the Middle East who could paralyse much of the world's oil supplies. Uh, And it lies with, you know, the working classes uh, of the left, uh, of Pakistan uh, and other countries um, in the region. And I reckon if, like, if we think back to how electrified people across the whole world were when the uprising started in the Middle East, people demonstrating solidarity through their own struggles, just, you know, so uplifted by and excited by um, those struggles in the the Middle East, um, and I, and I reckon thirsting for a monumental victory for the oppressed and exploited, because we all are. So we feel hope when the most oppressed and exploited fight back against the most powerful and brutal um, and seemingly unbeatable forces. Um, and and also, actually, if we think back to the mass anti-war marches that took place all around the world when the US announced its intention to evade. Uh, invade Iraq in 2003, the biggest anti-war demonstrations that have ever taken place before a war had even started. I think it's really clear to see that there could be a united working class struggle rooted 
like in the only power that can genuinely bring about the downfall of our regimes, all of our regimes, and that is the working classes um, of every country on this planet. You know, imperialism is is the systemic outgrowth of the competition between nation states to secure the profits and wealth of their own capitalist classes. But the global working class produces that wealth. So, you know, I think like now in the face of what's going on in Afghanistan, um, you know, the task of building forces um, and a socialist left that can you know, lead the, the, the working classes uh, across the region in the Middle East uh, and everywhere else um, to victory. It's, it's not like even an urgent task anymore. It's always been an urgent task. It's actually the only hope now um, of saving our planet from, from more wars and all the other atrocities that we're, we're seeing unfolding around the world now in Afghanistan, everywhere else. Yeah. Thank you, Simone. Um, it was a really illuminating discussion. I appreciate your time. And I'll make a plug for the socialism conference that's coming up in September that is uh, highly likely now to be an online event. And it will be online um, for anyone who needs to be on needs to be online and in person if it's possible in, in some places, maybe Perth, <laughs> maybe Adelaide. Um, so that is a conference that brings together literally hundreds of people, mostly in Australia, who share this vision of um, the urgent need and the um, organising and power of working class rebellion, not just in Australia, but as an international project. So if you want to, if you're feeling like you want to do something right now, if you want to get involved, if you want to learn more, the Socialism Conference is the perfect place to do that um, and tickets are available and the link is in the notes for this episode. Um, thank you, Simone. Thanks, Liam. And you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.